You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. In 1968, a stranger came to a small town in rural Ontario and began to ask strange questions about black magic, fantastical creatures, and the undead. The locals were somewhat suspicious at first, but he could speak their language, and his interest seemed genuine, so they shared what they knew. A few years later, stories began to spread of monsters stalking the forest and feeding on children and livestock, and of the disinterment and desecration of human remains. As recently as 2002, a Canadian TV series claimed that, for a short time in the early 20th century, the town had lived in fear of a rumored vampire, and that a desperate local man had beheaded his deceased wife in an effort to put an end to that terror. Now today, these stories are mostly regarded as ridiculous lies spawned by overactive imaginations and an unscrupulous, story-hungry media. Yet, like the vampires of legend, these stories, and the mysterious truths behind them, refuse to die. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. This year, 2022, is the 125th birthday of one of the most iconic and influential characters of English Gothic literature, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's a name that's so much a part of popular culture, it needs no introduction. Though Dracula wasn't the first or even the most popular vampire story at the time of its publication, its blend of Romanian folklore and Victorian Gothic horror has captured audience imaginations since its debut and shaped our understanding and appreciation of this ancient creature of legend. Tonight, in honor of everyone's favorite blood-sucking European aristocrat, we'll be looking at a vampire story found right here in Canada that is also a blend of traditional Eastern European folklore with New World Gothic storytelling and modern media sensationalism. It's a good example of how popular and traditional cultures can mix together with a little dramatic flair to create something entirely new albeit somewhat dishonest, and what happens when our love of fictional characters like Count Dracula influences and twists the way we talk about real people and real communities. This is the story of the vampires of Wilno, Ontario. Part 1. The Lie there is a little town about two hours west of Ottawa where, at one point in the not-too-distant past, large wooden crosses stood at every single crossroad. A sensible thing to do considering crossroads' long association with the conjuring of demons and wayward spirits. Most rotted away long ago, but a few still remain. Half hidden in the umber shade of autumn, or half buried in the frozen snows of winter, these last roadside sentinels still keep their solemn watch, passed down and maintained by the families who still honor the old ways, who have not forgotten the dangers that may yet linger in the shadows and walk those roads at night. So it was generations ago, before the farms were abandoned, before the children left. A mother had finished cooking breakfast and noticed that her daughter, normally helping in the kitchen by dawn, was still in bed. She dried her hands on her apron and called out to her. Nothing. She went to the banister and called again. 
Shaking her head, she marched up the stairs and threw open the door to her daughter's room. The curtains twisted and rippled like pale flags across the open window, wet and dark on the edges from the midnight rain. Her daughter lay motionless in a tangle of sheets, her eyes two sunken pools of pale blue staring up at the frost-colored sky. The mother rushed to her side and put a hand on her arm, then jumped back in surprise. Her skin was as cold as the earth and as rough and white as paper, except for a pink mark on her wrist, a ring of flesh that was hot to the touch. She was still alive, thank God, drained of all vitality, barely able to move. Her breath was as thin and wild as the windblown curtains. The mother knelt at her bedside and prayed. A meeting was called. The church bell echoed through the rocky hills, and the saviors of the crossroads passively looked on as people from every corner of the community moved to assemble on holy ground. There was disbelief and nervous laughter at first, but the church grew silent as the graveyard outside when a farmer told of finding his animals dead in the field, drained of blood. The crucifix that normally stood at the entrance to his field had been toppled. The mother stood next and addressed the crowd. Everyone there was welcome, she said, to come to her home and see the mark on her daughter's wrist. Her daughter, who was still too weak to move, who, if visited again by whatever had fed upon her, would not survive the night. It was settled. Evil had come to the village. The young owner of the general store spoke up. Could it be the brothers? He admitted he didn't know much about this sort of thing, but he remembered his grandmother telling stories of two brothers who had been excommunicated by the church. The legend said they had been buried in unmarked graves outside the cemetery. Could they have returned? An elderly woman shook her head. The proper measures had been taken. Each brother had been buried face down with a brick beneath their chin and a poplar cross inside their coffin. They were no longer a danger. Besides, it was likely a relative that had fed on the young girl, a member of her bloodline. That's how these things worked. A quick tally was done. The girl's father had died suddenly last year, but his cousin had passed the year prior, and his aunt disappeared the year before that. All at once, a string of 13 sudden deaths or disappearances occurring one each year and loosely connected by kinship unraveled before them. The first name on that list was the girl's grandfather, a man she had never known. The group looked to the old woman, who nodded slowly. His remains could be found in the older part of the cemetery, interred in the early days of the community, when a smaller population and harsh winters made it more likely for someone to be buried with less care and without the necessary precautions. If that were true, and he had returned, he would have risen shortly after his death, crawled from his grave, and hunted his kinfolk one by one, year by year, climbing higher up the family tree in an eternal quest to quench an eternal thirst. The girl was the last of his bloodline. If she died, if her mother had not discovered the mark on her wrist, and if they did not act now, he would return in twelve months' time, climb the church tower, and ring the bell, then hunt and consume all within range of its solemn toll.
Everyone returned to their homes, shut their windows, locked their doors, and kept their rosaries close at hand. When the moon had set, a few volunteers gathered in the churchyard and made their way to a slanted, moss-eaten gravestone. They set their lanterns along the edge of the grave and began to dig. It was easy work. The ground was soft and recently disturbed, and before long, they struck solid wood. The leader checked his pocket watch. It was almost time. The bravest among them stepped into the pit and pried at the coffin with a spade. The lid tumbled to the side, and the corpse bolted upright and turned its head. The group gasped and jumped back, but the leader raised a hand and explained that this was only a reflex, and that, for now, only the girl was in danger. It was hard to believe, even with death sitting there in front of them. Thirteen years had passed. The body should have been nothing but bones, yet here it sat, milky eyes open wide, mouth ajar, face swollen red, blood caked along its half-chewed lower lip, and smeared down its chin and neck. Its shirt was devoured to its waist. The man in the grave guided the creature onto its back with the flat of his spade, then centered the tip over its throat and pushed. There was a squelching sound as the head separated from the rest of the body and a stream of wine-colored blood flowed from the wound and into the coffin. He gathered all the blood he could in a mason jar, then grabbed the severed head by its hair and placed it gently between the corpse's feet. The group closed and sealed the lid, then buried the coffin once more. It was over. The monster had been defeated, and thanks to some quick thinking that kept that dark blood from seeping through the coffin's cracks and into the ground, the young girl would make a full recovery after imbibing the crimson liquid. The blood that her grandfather had taken from her wrist. Today, this story has been mostly forgotten, and the village is a shadow of what it once was. But still, there are a few families who keep the legends alive pass on the ancient folklore, and dutifully preserve the roadside crucifixes for the time when evil might come again. Part 2. The Legend The story you just heard is a combination of different rumors that began in 1972, when a young professor and researcher named Jan Perkowski published what would prove to be a controversial essay. Titled Vampires, Dwarves, and Witches Among the Ontario Cashups, the report claimed to be a recording and analysis of the quote-unquote dynamic force of the beliefs of the Ontario Cashups, a Slavic ethnocultural community who emigrated to Canada from Poland in the early 1860s. Over the course of a few weeks in 1968 and 1969, Dr. Perkowski visited the villages of Wilno, Berries Bay, and Killaloe, Ontario, an expedition funded by the Canadian Centre for Folk Culture Studies at the National Museum of Man, known today as the Canadian Museum of History. Perkowski met with a number of residents and asked them to share their stories of magic and monsters, what one informant later characterized as old wives' tales. The result was a fascinating look at how old cultural teachings and beliefs can come to new lands by way of the people who settle there, and how that living knowledge can erode, blur, and shift over time in order to meet the changing needs of that community. 
Some of the best examples are found in the section about witches and witchcraft. Perkowski details how a, quote, process of depersonalization, end quote, led to the community forgetting much of the traditional knowledge regarding the actions and identification of malevolent witches, while the belief in benevolent healers, known in the community as black magicians, became conflated with evangelistic faith healers. The dwarves of the title had also transitioned in the 100 years or so since the Kashubs first arrived, transforming from fairy-like mischievous creatures who were often considered a very real and very annoying presence in day-to-day -day life to mostly fictional characters in folktales and children's stories. It's all interesting stuff, but, of course, it was the vampires that got everyone's attention. Shortly after the paper was published, the media took notice, and several reporters wrote about and even visited the communities. Newspapers and magazines like the National Enquirer and Psychology Today published articles with names like Count Dracula in Canada and The Vampire Next Door. And for a short time, the township of Wilno, Ontario became the subject of fascination, sensationalism, and sometimes ridicule. The Kashub community was painted as a new Transylvania, right here in Canada, populated with its own superstitious farmers of Eastern European descent who had been taught to fear the undead. As one article from Canadian Magazine put it, quote, they worry about vampires and will know, end quote. How odd, how quaint, how exciting. Soon the tourists arrived asking locals for any information they had about the vampires who might be stalking the forest, and wondering which graves held the now headless bodies of the defeated Nosferatu. Even in the late 1990s, a stranger apparently showed up in the community and began pontificating to the locals about the purpose of the old crosses that can still be found at some of the crossroads. In reality, the roadside crosses are relics from early in the settlement's history, when poor roads and no reliable means of transportation made it hard for some settlers to attend church during dangerous and inclement weather. The crucifixes, erected by families throughout the region, provided a more convenient place for gathering, private prayer, and reflection. But according to some, including this one misguided tourist, they were erected not for personal reflection, but for community protection to ward off vampires and protect cattle from these monsters of legend. According to interviews at the time, the National Enquirer did the most damage and were the most insulting, making absolutely ridiculous claims, suggesting that farm animals were being drained of blood by a vampire residing somewhere close by. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a copy, but one of the more sensational and completely out-of-context articles I could find was printed 17 years later in the Ottawa Citizen in August of 1989. The headline is simple but stirring. The word vampires, written in a gothic typeface across the page, each letter form dripping with blood. The subhead below offers a chilling mystery. Quote, scholar unearths more than legends, end quote. It turns out that the scholar is Perkowski. A cutout of Bela Lugosi as Dracula from the 1931 film looks on from the side, his eyes fixed on the article below, his hand splayed slightly. He looks puzzled, as if he can't quite believe what he's reading. Neither could I. Here are just a few lines from the article. One evening in 1969, a group of residents took Perkowski to a local graveyard and pointed out a particular plot. 
It belonged, they said, to a whoopee. The word hit Perkowski like a cold hand. Whoopee is the Kashub word for vampire. Perkowski's companions that night had stopped this particular whoopee. They showed him the proof. It happened at Wilno, he wrote in Vampires, Dwarves, and Witches. They had to dig it up and cut off the head while he sat in the coffin. Yep, you heard that right. This article, written 17 years after Perkowski wrote his monograph, suggests that, along with learning the legends of these people, the scholar in the headline actually physically unearthed and inspected the corpse of a suspected vampire. Needless to say, all of this makes for some great stories. It's just a shame that almost none of it is true. For decades now, the people of Wilno, Berries Bay, and Killaloe have been denying all sorts of claims. No, we don't worry about vampires in Wilno. No, we don't think Dracula is real. No, we don't think that vampires are preying on our children or our livestock. No, we don't think people who have committed suicide become members of the undead. No, we don't think certain children are destined to be vampires either. And no, we don't cut the heads off corpses or shove crucifixes in their mouths or drive stakes through their brains. In 1973, a reporter asked a local priest for his thoughts on the sudden flood of interest in his little town. The priest said that he was amazed that such a thing would be printed, adding, quote, They're like stories my grandmother would tell us to scare us, end quote. Two decades later, a former Reeve of Wilno put it more succinctly. It's all crap, he said, and underlined that I said, pure crap. Many in the community agreed, bristling at all the attention and the nonsensical stories, considering them an insult to their community and their ancestors. This backlash led to even more fascination from outsiders, with some claiming that the community seemed a little too quick to deny the beliefs, a little too eager to protest the stories. It seemed, to some, suspicious, secretive, and fearful. It was exactly the kind of thing you'd expect to hear from a community who wanted to cover up a real vampire scare. It seems there's just no convincing some people. Eventually, the sensationalism and pop culture gothic bled into the historic account as well, making Dr. Perkowski's visit to Wilno a legend in itself. This is perhaps best exemplified in that same Ottawa Citizen article I mentioned earlier. Here are the opening lines. Jan Perkowski was hunting a vampire. For two years, he hunted the spoor of the undead. And although he never found the beast, he found its trail many times. A vampire had lived near the tiny Polish community, 120 kilometers west of Ottawa. Jan Perkowski knew its victims. Something came in the night and drew blood from her arm, a Polish mother told him in secret. It was a vampire. It came to my daughter at night and took marrow. There was a sign. A ring was visible. She was weak and had all her blood drawn out. According to myth, a vampire is a blood-sucking creature that leaves its grave at night to hunt humans. Its victims become vampires after death if the vampire has bitten them three times or more. Jan Perkowski knew the myths. His knowledge was so thorough, and his intense stare was so unsettling, 
Some will know farmers feared he was a vampire. Certainly a man possessed. If nothing else, this is a rather dramatic introduction to the unassuming researcher Dr. Perkowski, and it may be the high watermark for the complexities of Wilno's vampire trouble. Now, to its credit, it does give a voice to some of the scandalized residents of Wilno, and it expresses their disappointment and frustration. The work by the National Enquirer is mentioned in this article, and summed up by one interviewee as a, quote, hatchet job, end quote. Another interviewee complains about Perkowski, saying, quote, He was not a sincere man. He was not what he claimed. He sat here, here with me in my kitchen. I told him the old wives' tales, things my grandmother told me. But we don't believe those things anymore. He wrote terrible things. He caused the people around here a lot of pain, end quote. But once that's out of the way, the article turns around and sensationalizes and embellishes even more. It cites a vampire myth that has nothing to do with Kashubian traditional belief, and what's more, it frames Dr. Perkowski as a haunted, obsessive vampire hunter who intimidated the simple farmers of Wilno with his unsettling stare. That's simply not true. Nor is it true, as the article claims, that those same residents who feared he was a vampire showed him proof of their own vampire-slaying abilities at the local graveyard one fateful night. The quote, It happened at Wilno, they had to dig it up and cut off the head while he sat in the coffin, is taken completely out of context, which I'll get to in a moment. It's fascinating, really, how in just one article, Perkowski is described first as an obsessed vampire hunter, then as a disingenuous man, then as a scientist who dodges questions and panders to a Dracula-hungry public, and then, finally, as a persistent investigator and author who bore witness to the community's dark secrets. Now, I don't know much about the reporter who penned this article, but a quick Google search reveals that a reporter of the same name left the National Post in 2004 after it was discovered that nine of his articles allegedly contained fabricated names and quotes. If this article from 1989 was written by the same person, it might be an early example of that reporter's tendency to color outside the lines. Either way, such is the hypnotic power of the vampire, at least conceptually, that despite all the denial and debunking, people just can't help but add a little gothic mystery and intrigue to their stories. As recently as 2002, a popular TV show that claims to feature true Canadian stories took up the torch and continued the tradition. Here's a clip. For one terrifying week in 1903, few dared to venture out of their homes after dark in Wilno, Ontario. An unspeakable evil had begun to prey on the town, something that these Polish immigrants believed existed only in legends. No one was safe. The townspeople knew that the most terrifying of legends had come to their village. There was a vampire in their midst. Most consider vampires to be the stuff of legends. Legends brought to Canada by early European settlers. At the beginning of the 20th century, folklore and fact collided in the Polish village of Wilno, Ontario, where many claim a wave of vampire attacks shattered the small community. 
The segment continues to tell the story of a young, depressed woman who committed suicide and returned as a vampire to entrance and feed upon her unsuspecting cousin and sister. The dead woman's distraught husband has no choice but to visit the chapel where her body is laid out and remove her head with a butcher knife. He's put on trial for desecrating the chapel and her body, but found not guilty by a jury of townspeople because, quote, he had done what was necessary to rid the village of evil, end quote. The story ends in a way that's similar to other sensational pieces about Wilno, Ontario. Today, vampires are rarely spoken of in Wilno, except to deny their existence. But something unspeakable did happen in this quaint Ontario village. And the legend, like the vampires themselves, live on forever. It's unclear where exactly they're getting this story. Nothing like this is touched on in Perkowski's monograph, nor in any of the newspaper articles I was able to find. Like many other pieces inspired by the folklore but written for entertainment, it seems to take certain liberties and blend pop culture elements, like the idea that vampires can hypnotize you with their gaze, with traditional ones, like the idea that vampires will feed on their family first. There will be more about those key differences later, but for now it's worth noting that, if nothing else, this episode shows us that 30 years after Burkowski published his work, the vampire legends were still going strong. And that's true even today. Along with marking the 125th anniversary of Dracula, this year is the 50th anniversary of Burkowski's essay, and you can still find tales of the Wilno vampire, especially online. Most acknowledge the claims that the stories are taken entirely out of context, but many still embrace that tantalizing uncertainty, that perhaps there are some dark secrets still waiting to be uncovered. Of course, the pendulum swings the other way, too. Some more recent articles, YouTube videos, and podcasts about Wilno take the criticism to heart and likely avoid reading his essay, and come close to labeling Perkowski's monograph as a complete work of fiction crafted to appeal to a Dracula-hungry public by a dishonest outsider. Though it seems to be the dominant perspective today, this kind of criticism first appeared in some investigative journalism in the mid-1970s. Perkowski was an American, no worse, a Texan, they sniff, a linguistic or dialect scholar with, quote, an interest in the Poles and Slavic studies, end quote. Essentially, an outsider in all the ways one can be an outsider. He was not of these people, not even of this country. A Harvard alumni from the Ivory Tower, a scientist who, according to that wonderfully bizarre Ottawa Citizen article, quote, does not believe what he cannot record, end quote. He was a doubting Thomas, walking amongst the people of the earth, humble, faithful, and devout farmers. How could he possibly understand? He simply took their culture and turned it into a spectacle, knowing that his handlers at the museum were desperate for some sensationalist fluff that would appeal to the public. But Perkowski wasn't just a linguist with a passing interest in the subject. He is a now-retired professor of Slavic languages and literature at the University of Virginia. He's considered an authority on Slavic mythology and language, and an expert on Slavic vampires. When he visited Wilno, he spoke the Kashub language, of course, being a linguistic scholar, but he also possessed a deep understanding of the culture, history, and folklore of their ancestors. 
So which is it? Was Prakowski an expert who was simply recording the honest beliefs of Ontario's Kashub community? Or was he a clueless outsider, writing a thrilling bit of folklore-inspired fiction to entertain the monster-loving public? The answer, it seems, may be somewhere in the middle. He was, and is, certainly an expert, and I have no doubt that the recordings he collected and translations he made were done with an academic care and attention to detail. But his writing, in my opinion, can be a little dramatic. The very first page, after the table of contents, is a single photo of a crucifix grave marker, surrounded on all sides by a white picket fence with sharpened tops. A pull quote lies below, that same one about opening graves in Wilno and cutting off heads. It certainly succeeds in getting your attention, but the arrangement of the quote together with the photo suggests some significance, like maybe the fence posts are sharpened not to keep people out, but to keep something in. The opening sentence continues the drama. Quote, This is a book of testimony, a book of faith, end quote. Perkowski goes on to compare the superior quote-unquote old religions, those paganistic practices which supplied us with much of our folklore, with the quote-unquote new religions of Satanism, Wicca, and New Age astrology, blaming rising interest in the latter on an increase in the use of hallucinatory drugs. Remember, this was written in or around 1969. Finally, he ends his introduction with a warning, quote, Take care when you speak of demons, lest you know not of what you speak. Our minds are powerful things. The limits of their perception are not yet known. End quote. If you ask me, it seems Perkowski is at least supportive of using one's imagination as they read through his work. And he knew that much of what he wrote could or would be sensationalized. He said as much in an interview, noting that the museum wanted to lead with his research something jazzier, as he put it, something with more general appeal than the equally interesting but perhaps somewhat dry topics of Inuit carvings or Ukrainian Easter eggs. It seems that both he and the museum knew that people might take his writing out of context, but that was okay, as long as it got people talking. Part 3. The Lore Despite all of the talk of Count Dracula, the vampire of Kashubian folklore has very little in common with the notorious Transylvanian nobleman of fiction. It has even less in common with rock musician Lestat de Liancourt, eternal teenager Edward Cullen, or Toronto police detective Nick Knight. Shout out to all my fellow Canadian 80s kids. The vast majority of fictional vampires are noble, if not noblemen. Wealthy, worldly, wise seductive, a bit melodramatic, and, of course, attractive. Eternally youthful, most have lived comfortably for hundreds of years, beguiling and feeding on humans, strangers mostly, by biting their necks and drinking their blood. Mysterious and mesmerizing, dark and dangerous, they represent the lure of amoral immortality. It's little wonder why the pop culture vampire is such a modern sex symbol. Kashub vampires, on the other hand, are anything but... The following details are provided in Perkowski's essay, cited from a book by Friedrich Lawrence titled The Kasubian Civilization. The book was written to highlight the similarities between the Kashubs of north-central Poland and the Poles themselves. As such, this is not a summary of Canadian Kashub belief or knowledge, but rather an overview of the traditional beliefs of their ancestors. While pop culture vampires are ivory-skinned and unblemished, 
Kasubian vampires are bloated and red-faced, with spots of blood beneath their skin and fingernails. You can find pop culture vampires at your local nightclub, in your high school, or perhaps strolling the streets at night looking for their next victim. If they have a conscience, they might dine on a criminal or seek out the local blood bank. But Kasubian vampires are late sleepers, rising only at midnight. Once they do wake, they'll first eat their own flesh, along with much of their clothing down to the waist, then wander the village and prey on their own families, first their closest relatives, then more distant relations, killing one person each year by either draining their blood or carrying them away. After a few years, once all of their relatives have passed on, they will climb to the top of the church and ring the bell. Legend says that all who hear it must die. During the day, while most modern vampires sleep in their elegant, plush coffins, the Kasubian vampires will lie in their dirty graves or in their tombs. Should you disturb them, you will find them sitting up in their coffin with eyes wide open. Occasionally, they'll move their head in a dazed sort of way and jabber a few unintelligible words, imagery that aligns quite well with the theory that vampire lore was born from real cases of people being accidentally buried alive. The point is, compared to Count Dracula and the other popular vampires he helped inspire, Kasubian vampires seem to have more in common with zombies. They're mindless automatons, animated corpses with no coherent thought, following that most basic of instincts to feed. Keeping a Kasubian vampire in the ground is as simple as flipping him over, so that when he wakes, he digs forward, further into the earth. You can also put a small crucifix or coin in his mouth. It's a simple solution to address that odd oral fixation of theirs. Apparently, they'll happily suck on that coin or cross until rapture. You can also put a net in the coffin, but not for the reason you might think. Aside from rising from the grave and feeding on humans, the Kasubian vampire has one more rather eccentric instinct. And interestingly, this is one of the only qualities that overlaps with one of the most beloved vampires from pop culture, the Count from Sesame Street. Yes, apparently Kasubian vampires love counting even more than they love killing. Place a fishing net inside their coffin, or better yet, a bag of seeds or sand, and they'll take their time counting every single knot, seed, or grain before they can rise from the grave. The best part is that, according to some, they can only count up once per year. There's one more huge difference between the vampires of fiction and the vampires of Kashub folklore, and it has to do with their origins. In movies, books, and TV shows, pretty much anyone can become a vampire by either being bitten by one or drinking its blood. Not so with the Kashubs. In the traditional culture, there are, in fact, two kinds of vampires. They are, and apologies for my pronunciation, the Vyeshi and the Hupyi. Neither are made vampires. Rather, they are both destined or cursed to become vampires from birth. The first, the Vyeshi, are born with a call. That's a piece of membrane covering their face or their head. It's a rare event. It happens in about 1 in 80,000 births. And many cultures consider it lucky or a sign of future greatness. Sailors famously paid a small fortune for a dried call, believing it would save them from drowning. The Kashubs, however, considered it a sure sign that, when the person died, they would rise again as a vampire. There is a cure, however. Dry the call, grind it to dust, and have the child consume it when they're seven years old. 
likely by dissolving it in a drink or hiding it in their favorite dish. Do that, and the curse is lifted. The child can live a normal life, and when they die, they will rest in peace. The other class of vampire, the Wupyi, are not so fortunate. These are children who are born with teeth, an occurrence that's even more rare at about 1 in 200,000. Again, while some cultures consider it lucky, others, like the Chinese, consider it a bad omen and a sign of a monstrous nature. According to traditional Kashyap belief, for these children, there is no cure. They will likely live shorter-than-average lives, act restless and excitable, and may reject the priest and his Eucharist when death draws near. If the necessary precautions aren't taken, it is said that they will rise again as a vampire, and the only solution will be to open their grave at midnight and either drive a nail through their skull or cut off their head completely and lay it at their feet. A stream of blood will then flow from the wound that, if drank, will restore the strength of its victims. In 1935, the collector of these details noted about the Kashubs in Poland, quote, the belief in vampires is still alive among the Kasubians. As late as the first decade of the present century, a tomb was opened near Puck, and the body was desecrated by cutting off the head. Several attempts were made about the same time in the district of Kartuzi, but ineffectually, end quote. But that's the Kasubians of Poland of the early 1900s. Our focus is on the Kashubs of Canada of the late 1960s. So the questions are, how much folklore came to Ontario by way of its settlers? And how much of this knowledge and these practices from the old country hung on through the travels, trials, and tribulations that the Canadian Kashubs had to endure? As it turns out, less than was reported in the papers, but more than you might expect. Part 4. The Legacy Dr. Perkowski interviewed 15 people in total, who he referred to as informants to protect their privacy. They ranged in age from 57 to 89. Nearly everyone had something to say about vampires, mostly hazy memories or half-remembered stories that they didn't take too seriously. It seems that the difference between the two classes of vampires had been forgotten, and that makes sense. A vampire is a vampire, after all. Whether it was born with a cap or teeth makes no difference when it's murdering people in town. More important is the knowledge of how to deal with them, and some people recalled actually seeing people pouring sand in coffins, or making popular crosses and tucking them either in the mouth or somewhere near the body. You get the sense that these memories were shared as examples of how things used to be, perhaps here in Canada, but perhaps in the countries of their ancestors. Regarding the actual stories about vampires and vampire attacks, one man might have said it best for the majority of his neighbors. Quote, This surely did not happen, and I do not believe it, but many people did. Our elders told it that way. End quote. So does that mean that all the sensational stories about a vampire living next door and a village tormented by an undead monster were completely made up? Well, for the most part, yes, it certainly seems that way. But three of the 15 informants had something more to share with the doctor. Something personal, something disquieting, and something that suggested that vampires weren't just an old superstition of a faraway country and a distant past. 
A woman in her late 60s from Round Lake Center, Ontario, recalled how suspected vampires, apparently born with teeth, were either cremated or had an object placed under their tongue at burial. She then adds, intriguingly, quote, Here in the vicinity, there were certainly a lot of them, but I don't remember anymore. End quote. The phrasing definitely catches you off guard, but if we wanted to play it safe, we might assume that she doesn't mean there were a lot of vampires in the vicinity, but perhaps a lot of cremations or burial rites performed to keep the deceased in their graves, just in case. Interestingly, it seems that she herself was born with the second sign of the vampire. She explains, quote, Mother said that I had that cap on the head and that it was burned. Such a person is supposed to be lucky, but I don't know. End quote. Perkowski notes that she did not recall having ingested the ashes of her call as is prescribed in traditional Kashub folklore, but suggests it was likely kept a secret and hidden in a favorite food. Another woman from Barry's Bay echoes the previous report of objects being placed under the tongue of the deceased. She recalled one isolated incident when a certain child died, and the community decided to split a five-cent piece in half and place it under the child's tongue before burial. And finally, we get to Informant 8, a woman in her 70s from Killaloe, Ontario. Undoubtedly, her testimony has served as the main source of sensationalized stories throughout the years. Of all of Perkowski's informants, this one person seems to have had the most knowledge and perhaps experience with vampires, witches, and the supernatural. And she provides a number of fascinating bits of information. Like the woman from Barry's Bay, she also talks of a vampire child. But the details she provides, while scarce, tell a chilling tale. The following is her story as I understand it from the details provided in Perkowski's translations. Sometime in the 1920s, a child was born. And though both mom and baby were happy and healthy, some in the community began to whisper that the child had been born with the sign of a vampire. The child did well for several months and was even baptized at the local church, but tragically, it died suddenly in the night. The mother soon became ill as well, and many worried that she too would pass. As she lay dying in her bed, too weak to move, the women of the community had come together to aid the family and help with laying the small child to rest. Our storyteller was tasked with sewing the child's burial garment. So, cradling the infant's lifeless body in her hands, she laid it carefully upon the kitchen table, took her measurements, and began to sew. She had barely begun when she noticed a red blush begin to bloom in the child's face. And then... Shockingly, its little body began to move. She looked to the mother lying silent and ashen in the bedroom, then back at the child, which seemed to be coming more to life with each passing moment. She called her neighbor, Mrs. Edmansky, who was busy working in another room of the house. Come here, she said. The child is alive. The child is coming to life, but the mother is dying. Mrs. Etmansky came swiftly into the room and examined the small thing. Yes, she said, nodding grimly, but I will put it straight. Working quickly, Mrs. Etmansky took a sewing needle from the table and, with steady hands, pricked the baby's fourth finger, drawing two or three drops of living blood up the shaft. She carried the blood-soaked needle to the bedroom, whispered a few soft words to the mother, then drew the needle across the dying woman's tongue. 
Within moments, the baby fell cold and still once more, and the mother regained her strength. The child, wrapped in its newly sewn garment, was finally laid to rest, and the mother, now fully recovered, was able to attend the ceremony. The storyteller ends with this observation. If she hadn't been there to sew the burial gown, if the child had been laid out straight away for burial, quote, the mother would have been taken dying to the grave, end quote. It's an unbelievable story, isn't it? Darkly tragic, with deeply unsettling imagery and implications. It's also very mysterious, both in its delivery and its content. The story as translated and recorded in Perkowski's essay is just 14 sentences and is woefully low on detail. No explanation is offered for why the mother was dying or why ingesting the dead child's blood revived her. But following what we've learned about Kasubian folklore, the fact that vampires are predestined from birth and that a vampire's blood can restore its victims, these elements suggest the unthinkable. That after its death, the child rose again as a vampire, and as it lay inside the home awaiting burial, it was secretly rising in the night to feed on its mother. Informant 8's experience with vampires doesn't stop there. Later, she shared another bone-chilling story, this time with, quote, a great deal of reticence, end quote. She was nervous and reluctant to admit that her own family had been victimized too. Here's what she said. When we were there on that farm, something came to my daughter. Something came in the night and drew blood from her arm. It was a vampire. It came to my daughter at night and took marrow. There was a sign. A ring was visible. She was weak and had all her blood drawn out. It healed later. What they did is forgotten. Mind you, he came at night when she was sleeping. It was a vampire that came. Have you ever heard of such a thing? We didn't tell anyone anything. We didn't do anything. She wasn't sick at all. She was kind of weak for a while, you know? She was about 16, 15 years. We kept it a secret. We never told anybody. Later, she adds two chilling facts about the cause of the family's pain and the extent of their suffering. Someone's grandfather wasn't properly seen to. Fourteen people, counting my son, died. One a year. They just died. Suddenly. According to Perkowski, she seemed to feel that these tales of being preyed upon by a local vampire were, quote, something to be ashamed of and to hide, end quote. And that might seem like a strange perspective at first, until you remember that Kashub vampires prey on their own kin. This suggests that, somewhere down the line, a family member wasn't buried with the proper precautions, and now had risen again as an evil, deadly force. To use a common metaphor, it's akin to saying that your family has skeletons in its closet. But in this case, it's vampires. Finally, there's one more bit of testimony that I want you to hear. It's that quote that Perkowski placed in the opening of his monograph, and the one that's most often quoted, misquoted, and sensationalized, describing the seemingly commonplace desecration of corpses within the Canadian Kashub community. 
It was featured, in part, in that rather questionable news article I mentioned earlier, but here it is in its entirety, as recorded and translated from Informant 8. There was a lot of that at Wilno in the graves. They opened graves. They cut the heads off. When they die and were born vampires and are not seen to, then they have to dig up the graves. First he carries off his relatives and then as far as the bell rings. It happened at Wilno. They have dug up many, but it was not told, uh, revealed. They had to dig it up and cut off the head while he sat in the coffin. At first blush, this quote seems especially chilling and an effective rebuttal to all those community members who complained about outsiders' overactive imaginations. Here is a local telling us very clearly that such activities were almost common not too long ago. It's also an exciting, fascinating, and somewhat ghoulish thing to think about, that hidden in the earth, somewhere within the graveyard of a sleepy village in southern Ontario, lie countless bodies that had to be exhumed and decapitated, evidence of an ancient fear and superstition carried from the old world to the new. This is the quote that many have held on to, believing there's more to the case of the Wilno vampire. Perhaps, they say, this is what the dissenters were trying to discount, trying to hide. They didn't want others to know that, at one time, the small Ontario town was in the grip of panic, driven to dig up and decapitate family, friends, and neighbors, fearful, perhaps, that a vampire walked among them, that a child had preyed on its mother, and a long-past grandfather had, for 14 years, come in the night to drink the blood of his progeny and kill them year after terrifying year. Now that is certainly intriguing. But if you've listened to my other episodes, you know I like to explore every angle of a legend, even if the alternatives are less than exciting. So let's start with the obvious and most common alternate explanation, that Informant 8's stories were either completely fabricated or exaggerated for attention or entertainment purposes. It's a fair point, especially when you consider that the most amazing, dare I say unbelievable stories, came from this one person. This fascinating woman from Killaloe and her family were clearly very experienced with and knowledgeable about all sorts of supernatural phenomena. She told Perkowski about how she had personally seen a white phantom horse with a black spot suddenly materialize in a field. She watched dumbfounded as it lingered a moment, then vanished. Her daughter, presumably the same one who had been preyed upon by a vampire, had her own supernatural encounter with a headless ghost. Even if we forget the tales of vampiric children and seniors, while others were telling stories of crosses in coffins and coins being placed in the mouths of the departed before burial, she was talking about digging up graves and slicing off heads. The crosses and coins could easily be understood as ancient burial customs carried through to modern day, an act done traditionally, perhaps even without knowing why, or just in case. But it's hard to imagine people in Ontario digging up and decapitating corpses in a community that was founded the same year as Macy's department store. Maybe she was eager to please, and exaggerated a bit for the benefit of her audience. Or maybe she knew that her community had done something to prevent vampires, and had just assumed that that something was the most extreme prevention technique found in the culture. 
Maybe a parent or a grandparent told her stories of how they used to take precautions when burying a loved one, meaning they had placed a cross in the coffin, but time and imagination had taken over, and in her mind, transformed those simple acts into something unthinkable. Now that's the first alternative. The second is that she was being completely truthful, and the information she was conveying was entirely factual as far as she was aware, but that when she said there was a lot of that at Wilno, she was actually speaking about a different Wilno entirely. Wilno, Ontario, celebrated today as Canada's oldest Polish parish, was originally founded by about 300 Kashub and Polish settlers. Today, the population sits between 200 and 500, depending on who you ask. Those aren't the kind of numbers you'd expect of a community accused of exhuming multiple graves. Remember, according to traditional Kashub culture, vampires aren't made. They're born with a warning sign, either a tooth or a call, and both are rare, about 1 in 200,000 and 1 in 80,000 respectively. So it seems highly unlikely that a village of just hundreds would see more than one or two cases since it was founded in the 19th century. The same can't be said, however, by the much older global city and capital of Lithuania, Wilnius, also known in Polish as Wilno. That's right, Wilno, Ontario gets its name from Wilno or Wilnius, Lithuania. It's a name chosen by the early settlers to honor the birthplace of the community's spiritual leader and town founder, Ludwig Dembski. Now, Lithuania is a Baltic country, while Poland is considered Slavic, and it's not a traditional home of the Kashubs. But Poland's northern provinces, including some of the traditional lands of the Kashubs, border the Baltic Sea. And, as is evidenced by the Canadian Kashub's embrace of their Lithuanian reverend, the people share many cultural similarities. That would include, it seems, certain traditions about vampires. There is a lot of historical documentation, and even a bit of archaeological evidence, showing that suspected vampires were being beheaded in that area of Lithuania since at least the 14th century, and as recently as the 18th century. One news article from 2017 about the discovery of a 14th century grave details how the remains of a 45 to 50-year-old woman was found in an area just outside Wilnius. Her skull had been removed from her body, turned around, and placed on her chest. Her arms, severed at the elbows, were placed between her legs. The article from the Lithuania Tribune goes on to mention similar burial sites found in the area, noting, quote, Archaeological research authors relate these graves to ostensibly pagan burial rituals, which reflect the struggle with vampires among the baptized Prussians. The archaeological data suggests that a custom was observed in the 18th century to decapitate the heads of the perceived vampires and place the heads between the legs, in the hope that the vampires would not harm the living." End quote. So considering that many of the Canadian Kashubs believed that Dr. Perkowski was interested in hearing any old wives' tales, is it possible that Informant 8 was simply sharing the vampire lore of a much older, much larger community also named Wilno? Perhaps, like the community's revered reverend, she or someone from her family also came from that region and the knowledge of these Lithuanian vampire burials was passed on. Now, I admit, it's a stretch. And if we discount this theory, and further, believe that Informant 8 was being honest and was of sound mind, then we're faced with an intriguing and disturbing implication. That a dark and secret history lies buried in the earth, 
somewhere within Ontario's Madawaska Valley. But to believe that, you'd be ignoring the 14 other interviewees who didn't say a word about that kind of activity, and the many community members who later told reporters that they were hurt and appalled by these strange accusations. Personally, I think it's best to learn and share the stories honestly. Even the most sensational and bizarre stories can tell us something of our culture, but we should be honest about their questionable origin and of the sensationalism that inspired them, and ensure we honor and respect the communities from which they came. The various modern legends of Wilno's vampires are the products of multiple cultures and imaginations from vastly different places and times, coming together to create something new. They're fun stories to discover and to share. Just remember that the people of Wilno likely don't believe a word of it. Part 5. Death and Life According to community members, Today, it's virtually impossible to find anyone in Wilno, Barry's Bay, Killalo, or other nearby communities who are even able, let alone willing, to speak about Kashub vampire lore. Part of it might be due to frustration and fatigue with the vampire mania of the 1970s and 80s, but the main reason seems to be simply because much of the lore has been forgotten. It seems that Jan Prakowski's peculiar foray into Canadian Kashub culture came at a pivotal time. Though his essay may have inspired quite a bit of sensationalism and Dracula-driven drivel, Perkowski actually notes that, while some in the community knew the old stories, much of the lore and knowledge of vampires was fading fast. He writes, quote, Although vampires appear now and again, they do not play a major role in the lives of the Canadian Kashubs. The increasing availability of hospitals for births and mortuaries for burials hinders the detection of vampires. When the close, personal link between a community and the birth and death of each individual is broken, much of the dynamism of the vampire daemon is sapped away. Deaths, which would have been attributed to vampires in earlier times, are now attributed to other causes." End quote. To Perkowski, the vampires of Wilno, Ontario were, as he put it, anthropomorphisms of the subconscious fear of death. Modern medicine and healthcare took death out of the home and even out of the community. Many no longer had to look death in the face to see a body laid out on the parlor table or deal with the shock of the sudden and unexplained passing of a loved one. In time, the psychological need to cope with those grim realities faded as well. But the macabre folklore and supernatural stories that Prakowski wrote about were just one part of a culture that seemed to be struggling to survive. In 1979, just seven years after the publication of Vampires, Dwarves, and Witches, another curious author came to town, this time writing for Maclean's magazine. The article, titled A Village Dine for Faith and Pride, was published in March of 1980 and paints a picture of an aging community with an uncertain future. Old Kashub Canadian and Polish Canadian farmers and loggers, beer in hand, tell the author how they're worried about the future of Wilno how the population had dwindled to just 164 souls, how family farms had to be abandoned after too many harsh winters and sold to outsiders, how they made just enough to get by, and how the young people seeking new opportunities elsewhere in Canada were leaving behind their community, their faith, and even their culture. It seems that the advances of the late 20th century saw the community of Wilno, Ontario, exchange one fear of death for another.
There are a lot of gothic themes here. Fear of the unknown, struggling against a harsh and unforgiving landscape, anxiety about identity and culture, the struggle between traditional beliefs and modern knowledge, the past and the present. Dr. Perkowski sensed it too, writing in his introduction how the Kashubs of Ontario demonstrated faith in both the new and old religions. They relied on the Catholic Church for a vital sense of community, structure, and stability, and relied upon ancient traditional knowledge about vampires, magic, and the unseen to face and cope with the unknown, undesirable, and inexplicable. That is, perhaps, the single greatest difference between the vampires of fiction and the vampires of folklore. One causes anxiety and fear. The other relieves it by giving people a sense of control through ritual and understanding over the forces of evil and death. But with monsters of literature and film an ever-present part of entertainment and pop culture, we're constantly at risk of confusing the two. The comparisons to Bram Stoker's Dracula have already been mentioned, but other comparisons have been made as well. For example, it's no wonder that some authors have compared Wilno to Sleepy Hollow, the spooky setting of Washington Irving's famous gothic story about an American town terrorized by a headless horseman. That, too, explores ideas of new and old religion. Ichabod Crane is famously an educated schoolteacher and a staunch believer in puritanical ideas of the supernatural. It's also a setting full of secrets and suspicions, an unfamiliar and challenging landscape, populated by early settlers who seem reluctant to speak of everything they know, or indeed, everything they experience. Happily, despite the fears that were shared in Maclean's back in 1980, Wilno is more than just a memory. Today, the community is small, but proud of their Kashub and Polish ancestry. It's home to a Polish Kashub Heritage Museum, and a tavern that serves up giant pierogies, Polish sausage, and pickled herring. They also host the Kashub Day Festival and the famous Wilno Chicken Supper, an event that has fed thousands each year since 1936. If you're ever in the area, check it out. Grab a pierogi platter and a beer, drive by the remaining roadside crosses, and learn the history of this charming and unique community. Just don't ask them about vampires. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Mike Rink and Claire Brassard for their vocal performances. And thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember that storytelling can be a powerful thing, and that, real or not, vampires, monsters, and demons can still have a profound effect on our world. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. This episode's sound design and mixing was by Joseph Fish. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca. 